Uh, let me get you get your Bibles tuned up. We're going to be in Genesis chapter six, seven, and eight. We're going to cover a lot of material today, so uh, just be ready to flip through the pages or on your iPhone or whatever you've got there. But before we get started, let me just say again what a wonderful experience it always is to be at Talatha Baptist Church. Um, you know, every pastor has like one of their favorite churches that they go to. And I can tell y'all, y'all are, y'all are like right there. I mean, every time I come here, this is a wonderful, wonderful church. And your friendliness and your outgoingness, your mission-mindedness, uh, 311 shoeboxes for Operation that's, that's quite amazing. And then I know uh, about six or eight weeks ago, y'all sent uh, a check over to France, uh, where I go every year. We've got four gospel preaching churches in France, and y'all are, are helping out there now. And I'm, I'm telling you what, France, those churches are on fire for the Lord. And uh, even in the mid of COVID, um, I've never seen anything like it. People are watching the services online who have never stepped foot in a church, probably may not afterwards, but they're receiving Christ, including some of the um, soccer coaches over there. Soccer is a big thing over there. And uh, so when, when COVID lifts, I, you know, I can't imagine what it's going to be like. And there's usually three or four Muslims that come to faith in Christ every year. And it's just an amazing thing. So as you get more involved, you're going to hear more and more stories of what God is doing uh, in, in the country of France. Well, we're between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I uh, kind of apologize for not having a Christmas sermon, but I, I think what we're going to share today needs to be said. Uh, we live in a broken world, and I, I mean, I don't want to start off on a downer like that, but but it's true. We live in a broken world, and when I do gospel training at our church, we teach people actually when they share the gospel, just start off on that phrase because everybody agrees with it. Whether they're a Christian or not, uh, they understand something is wrong uh, in the world in which we live in. I'm not talking about the United States. I'm talking just worldwide. We do live in a broken world, and there are even non-Christians uh, that know something morally is broken. I, I want to read a quote to you from Camille Paglia. She says that gender issues are historically the final step of imminent civilization collapse. And she goes on to say the acceptance of transgenderism is the very last sign which occurs just before the catastrophic collapse in every single civilization in 5,000 years of recorded history. Now, in case you're wondering who Camille Pagula might be, she's not a believer. She's a Yale grad. She is a professor of arts at uh, the University of Philadelphia. She's an atheist. She's a feminist, and she's a lesbian. But even she recognizes something is really broken in our world. And if we go down this path, it's not going to be pretty. Now, I find it interesting that someone completely opposite from what biblical worldview would even say something that all evangelicals would agree with. But here's the point as we get into the story of Noah. As I read chapter 6, no one in Noah's day, except Noah himself, believed that there 
world was at a critical state. No one from the opposite side. No one. Things were so bad, evil was so prevalent that everything and everyone thought this is just normal. There were no dissenting voices, even from the unrighteous. To be honest, I, I cannot fathom the world in which Noah lived. You know, I look at our world, I go, man, this is bad. I can't imagine the world in which Noah lived. And so when we look at chapter six, verses six, or excuse me, verses five through seven, it says that when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. And the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, the creatures that crawl, the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, <laughs> found favor with the Lord. We're told of God's grief, God's sadness, sorrow at the very intent of man and woman's heart was to do evil all the time. It never shut down. Everyone was on the same page with this systemic wickedness. And it says that God regretted this. Now, when, when the Bible talks about God being sorry or uh, regretting something, it's not like human emotion. It doesn't mean that God was caught off guard at the wickedness of man. He'd already seen this from the Garden of Eden. It doesn't mean that God made a mistake uh, in creating mankind because the writers of the Bible are very emphatic that God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't repent in the, the human sense that we must repent. It just means God was thoroughly disgusted. Thoroughly disgusted at the prevalence of evil in the world of Noah. And so I want us to understand and to be reminded that God always sees and He always judges sin. It grieves Him. And He always judges it. Let's be very clear about that. No one gets away with their sin. God would not be true to Himself if He didn't respond to sin with judgment. And God is fair in this judgment. Now, God is always patient. He's always merciful. He's been merciful for five chapters in Genesis. He was, he was merciful with Adam and Eve when they sinned. He was even merciful with Cain when he killed his brother. But now, God is so grieved at the sin of the whole world that He's going to wipe the whole world out. He sees and he judges sin, and he's holy in this because he takes holiness seriously. So let that be a reminder to us this morning that um, there will be a final judgment where God will again judge the sin of the world. And the New Testament tells us this judgment won't be by a flood, it's going to be by fire. He sees and he judges sin. You know, sometimes people say, you know, how. How can God possibly send someone to hell forever and ever and ever? When I try to imagine the world in Noah's day, I, I question how could God even 
send anyone to heaven if it was that bad. But thankfully, we have Noah that stands out and he finds favor. He finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. So not only does God judge sin, God also judges faithfulness and righteousness and obedience. And, and don't let that be missed out on, on us this morning either. Because we usually think of judgment as a negative term. You know, we do something, somebody says, now don't judge me on that. Like it's going to be a bad thing. Well, judgment can be a wonderful thing for those who are being obedient to the Lord. Judgment has two sides. There, there's that retribution side, the punishment of sin, but there's the blessings, there's the reward, there's the favor that comes when we are being obedient to God and to His commands. And so verses you know, 8 and 9, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then notice in verse 8 as well, uh, he found favor with, with the Lord, but in verse 9, and these are the family records of Noah. Noah was says three things here. He was a righteous man. He was blameless among his contemporaries. And Noah walked with God. Now, here's a, here's a mini three-point sermon right here. Let, let's really look at this, you know. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord because he was a righteous man. It's also mentioned in chapter... 7 verse 1, Noah was told uh, of the Lord here, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone, that's you singular, right? He was not talking about the rest of his family. You, Noah, alone are righteous before me in this generation. He was righteous. He was singled out for judgment and declared righteous. In the New Testament, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. You don't need to turn there, but 2 Peter 2.5 says that God did not spare the ancient world, but He preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. So he was a preacher of righteousness as well. We're not told that in the Genesis story, but apparently his lifestyle, his verbal witness, Noah was the only one in the whole wide world standing up for the things of God. And it fell on deaf ears. Now, you and I have been declared righteous. We've been declared righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we are to be preachers of righteousness. We are to tell the world of this righteousness, even if it falls on deaf ears. Noah was declared righteous. He was also blameless among his contemporaries. Now, Noah wasn't perfect. In fact, as you might know the story, if you keep reading, uh, you know, after the flood, uh, Noah's going to get himself in trouble. Uh, he was not perfect. Um, not by any means was he a perfect man, but he was, as best he could, obedient to God. He listened to God. He was faithful to God, even though he wasn't perfect. He was humble. He was declared righteous. Now Noah's walked with God. That's the third thing it says there. Noah walked with God, and that really wraps it up. He was out of step with the world. He was out of step with culture, but he was in step with God. So in spite of the evilness of man, Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord, and God uses Noah to rebuild this broken world. Then in verses 17 and 18, 
God says, I want you to understand that I am bringing a flood, floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven and the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. So this is the first time that the word covenant is used in the Scripture. Now, technically, it's not the first covenant. God made a covenant with Adam and Eve. He talked about how there would come a one who would, would uh, crush Satan, the serpent, forever. So uh, it's technically not the first covenant, but it's the first time that Moses, when he's writing Genesis, uses this word covenant. And it's very interesting that he makes this covenant with Noah. And Noah alone, even though family gets to be a part of it. The covenant is with Noah, but his wife, his sons, and his daughter-in-laws get to share in the coattails of this righteousness. Now, I think there's a word here for parents and particularly for fathers, a very important application. Because of the obedience and the righteousness of Noah, the whole family is spared. The whole family is saved. The covenant is with Noah, but it affects those that he loves. He's righteous, and the whole family gets to enter into the safety of the ark. And I just want to say to dads and, and maybe granddads now, you know, be like Noah. Be righteous. Be blameless among your contemporaries and walk with God. And if you'll do that, you'll be a blessing to your wife, you'll be a blessing to your children, and you'll be a blessing to your daughter-in-law. I mean, this is an incredible promise right here, this covenant that God is making with Noah. Now, just to uh, share some bird family laundry, um, there is a thread that runs through the history of the bird family of alcoholism. Um, it, it's sad. And maybe if you've ever traced your family history, you'll see certain sins running through it. And I know several of my cousins have struggled with alcoholism. Uh, one of my favorite uncles actually uh, hung himself in a jail cell uh, that was all alcohol related. Uh, he just could not uh, get through it. And my dad grieved that, uh, that he couldn't save his brother uh, from that tragedy all of his life. What I didn't know is about eight or ten years before my father passed away, um, he had an honest moment with me. <laughs> and there was a time that he was doing a lot of drinking when he and mom first got married. And I can't imagine my dad just getting, you know, stone cold drunk or anything like that. But after work, instead of coming home, he'd go out to the bar or the tavern with some of the men that he worked with. And my mom, uh, she comes from a family of gamblers. So, you know, we'll have a wonderful family history here, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, she's scared about other things going on. And uh, they had a husband and wife come together meeting. And uh, she demanded this, this behavior stop or there were going to be consequences. And my dad drove a spiritual stake in the ground. And uh, quit drinking. It was never really a part of our growing up in our house, except at Christmas time. There was eggnog. I do remember that, you know. But 
you know, my dad says this stops here. He was a believer. He got involved in local Baptist church. He became a deacon. He was actually treasurer for a while. He taught Sunday school. And I remember, you know, sitting in his lap, listening to Bible stories from my dad. And that's because he made a decision to be righteous before God, to take the righteousness of Christ and to be obedient and do the things that he should be doing. And it's a wonderful story. And I so love my dad for that because um, he set an example and his protection was over our family. There was an umbrella protection over our family. So don't be afraid of this word judgment. God judges righteousness. He judges obedience. He judges faithfulness. And it brings blessings and rewards. And I guess there are many men in this church and they have set aside their sin in a similar way. They've set aside pornography perhaps or alcohol, probably their pride. There's some men in this church probably have set aside religion for true faith in Jesus Christ. They've set aside divorce. They've set aside their work. They set aside their career for the glory of God, for the good of their wife, for the good of their children, for generations to come. So don't be afraid of this word judgment because God makes covenants and He makes promises with those who abide according to His word. Amen. And uh, God protects His people in times of judgment. Obviously, we see this in the flood. As you move into chapter 7, all chaos breaks loose upon the world. But Noah just obeys and he's protected and his whole family as a result of it. And so when you get into chapter 7, particularly verses 11 and 12, it talks about how the floods, the, the heavens just dripped all the water that was in the heavens. There's water from underneath the earth that comes up. This is a reversal if you go back in uh, the first chapter of Genesis where God separated the waters from above the firmament and those below. And now he brings these two powerful forces together for the destruction of the wickedness. The, 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 the language there, it's just cataclysmic. Um, it's, it's tragic uh, as you read through these chapters and how evil this world must have been. But in verse 13 of chapter 7, we get this contrast between Noah and culture again. But on that same day when, when these floodwaters came together, um, Noah, along with his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's wife and his three sons' wives, they entered the ark with him. They entered the ark. They were going to be protected uh, because they were obedient to God even in the building of the ark. Now, I think it's also interesting note here that we are explicitly told that Noah and his sons were monogamous. Noah had one wife. His three sons each had one wife. There are no mistresses allowed on the ark. There are no girlfriends. There, there's no concubines. Uh, Noah is being obedient to the very laws of marriage. One man for one woman in marriage, faithful to each other until death shall part them. And then in verse 16, we see that they're even faithful to their own gender. Those that entered the ark, male and female of every creature, entered just as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut them in. So we have all these wonderful 
little hints of how we are to live life in our world that is so confused over marriage and divorce and, and gender roles and all of that. It's all pretty clear right here in this story of, um, of Noah. So while chaos is raining down on this rebellious world, there's order in the ark, there's obedience, there's faithfulness, and there is protection because of the covenant that God made with Noah. And then in chapter 8, we see how God restores his world. In verse 1, it says that God remembered Noah. Isn't that a great phrase? God remembered Noah. It's not like he forgot he was out there. He remembered his covenant. God remembered it every day. Isn't, isn't it great to be remembered by God? Because I know some days we wonder, God, have you forgotten about me? You know, you got these promises for me. Are, are you still there? Are you looking out for me? Oh, yeah, God always remembers. He remembers his covenant. He's faithful to us. And so we, we have God. He's, he's not overlooked. No, he remembers him. He brings him safely to dry land. He remembers his promises. And as we move through the Christmas season, we need to know that God always remembers his promises. He always judges obedience and faithfulness. He always brings great rewards to his people and deliverance to his people. So the ark lands, it's been afloat over a year. The people are released. The animals are released. Recreation begins. And let me close just on the final few verses of chapter 8. It's where Noah now responds in worship. I'm sure there's worship had gone on in the ark. I'm sure they were singing songs and praying and uh, being obedient to God. But we have a, another little glimpse here that Moses reveals to us about Noah building an altar. And this is the first time that the word altar is used in the Bible. Now, we know there have been sacrifices before, back in uh, the first part of Genesis. You remember Cain and Abel, they each made a sacrifice. One was acceptable, one. but altar isn't specifically mentioned, but now it is. So notice in uh, chapter 8, in verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I've done. As a result of this altar, as a result of the worship, God says, I'm not going to do this ever, ever again. I won't destroy the world this way ever again. God responds to our worship. Amen. He responds to our altar building. He responds to our times of prayer and our family altars as well as coming to church. And then I love verse 22. For as long as the earth endures, here's a great promise. As long as the earth endures, because it won't endure forever, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, they won't cease. God has promised that. All as a result of Noah following God, building an altar, giving him his worship. God responds to our worship. He responds to our um, altar building. 
I'm not going to curse the world again like that. Now notice God's not saying that He's not going to continue to, to judge sin. He's just saying, I won't curse the ground again, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from the youth onward. You see, sin didn't stop once the floods went away. Wouldn't that have been nice if, if the flood could have washed away our sin once and for all? But it doesn't. Sin's not out there. It's in here. And God understands that. And of course, we understand it. It's, it's internal to man and woman. And so sin continues after the flood. But in light of this permanent reality of sin in our world, God in His grace responds to an altar and says, I will not judge the world again by water because of this sacrifice lifted up by Noah. It was acceptable to him. As we move from Thanksgiving to Christmas, I think there's a foreshadowing here. It's a foretaste of the propitiation of Jesus Christ on the cross. He laid himself out on an altar, the ultimate act of worship to the Father. And the Father saw this and said, you know, this is the end of sin. Never again will another sacrifice like this have to be made. This one is the last one, the final sacrifice. And it's good to wash away everyone's sin. It's good to wash away all the judgment in the negative way. And it's good enough to bring eternal salvation for people. So as we yield ourselves to Christ, as we repent of our sin, as we turn our life over and say, Lord, I want to be obedient as best I can. I want you to forgive me of my sin. I'm going to follow you and be obedient to you. I know I won't be perfect, but I'm going to be obedient. Then we can receive the blessings of God in our life and our families will benefit from that as well. So uh, this wonderful story of Noah, I have more and more respect for Noah than just the old story of the flood. He was righteous. He stood out among his contemporaries and he walked with God. And when he worshiped, he moved the heart of God to make some long lasting promises that God will never, ever fail on. And that's the kind of God we have. And he will never fail you. As we live obedient lives, as we receive the righteousness that he gives us through Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us before we go. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of men who are failed and flawed even in their own way. But you are a great God and you give us these wonderful promises. You make these covenants with us. And Father, some of us here this morning are the recipients of righteous choices that others made before us. And now, Lord, may we be found faithful to the next generations and the generations to come. And Father, for Talitha Baptist Church, they are the recipients of good decisions that past congregations have made. And now may this congregation make wise decisions to be obedient to you that will affect future congregations that aren't even born yet. We live for you, Lord. We live to glorify you. Accept our worship today. Accept our altar. And let us love you as best we can. In the name of Jesus, amen.